Hey there, my name is Jarrett, and I want to welcome you to Soul City Church. We're a local church here in Chicago with a global reach. So no matter where you're joining us from or, or how you're joining us, I just want you to know that we are a church. This isn't just online content. We're a church committed to leading people into a transforming relationship with Jesus. And we want to do whatever we can to help you find and follow Jesus, to know him and actually grow in a relationship with him. And again, the reason I want you to know that we're a church is because I want to spend the next couple of weeks speaking to the church, specifically to the church in America that has somehow seemingly lost its way and found itself enmeshed in politics and the power that it promises. I want you to think of the next couple of weeks like a family meeting. You ever had one of those? Like, kids, get in here. We're having a family meeting. Yeah, everyone's a little apprehensive when they walk in thinking that they're the reason for the family meeting. Yeah, this is like one of those, but it's going to be a good one. I promise you. This week, we're kicking off a brand new teaching series called Church and State. Church and State. It's a series that will go through this election day and hopefully serve as a guide, maybe a warning, an encouragement, and an invitation for you to live and love like Jesus through these crazy days that we are all walking through. Listen, as someone who's been a part of the church for most of my life and has had the privilege of being one of the pastors of this church, I want to be really honest with you. I'm concerned. I'm concerned about this country, yes, but I am more concerned about the church in this country about where we're at and where it seems like we're headed. And at the same time, I also want you to know I'm hopeful for the church. I'm hopeful that you will be a part of this third way of Jesus that he has created and is calling his church to be, especially in these days that we are walking through. You know, I, I remember, this is years ago now, uh, I was speaking at a high school Christian camp. So it was at a high school youth summer camp. And the camp happened to go over uh, 4th of July, over the 4th of July holiday. And I remember in the middle of this camp, they had a huge 4th of July celebration. It was amazing. And professional level fireworks. But I want to be really clear, not operated by professionals. And so there were fireworks shooting literally all over the place. Several flew right past me. And at the end of this big fireworks show, uh, they played that old Lee Greenwood classic, Proud to be an American. And all these kids that had previously, just an hour or so before, been singing worship songs to God were singing, I'm proud to be an American. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with fireworks celebration. I love a good fireworks show. There's nothing wrong with Lee Greenwood's song. I mean, I have some structural issues with that song, but there's nothing wrong with that song. There's nothing wrong with the fact that at that same camp, I got to referee an amateur wrestling match. That's all true. That happened in one week. But here's where I'm concerned. It's the enmeshment of the church's identity with American identity. It's how over time we have kind of merged the two. And no, they're not mutually exclusive things. They can coexist together, but it's the way that the church is existing in this country today that has me concerned and has me wondering, is there any hope of the church being the hope of the world? Is there any hope of the church actually being the hope of the world? Now, to understand where we're at in this moment, we got to understand how we got here. 
and how the church that was built on the resurrection power of Jesus has settled for the the sugar rush power promised by politics. So first, I need to give you a little history lesson, all right? I'm going to like go into professor mode, and I just need you to stay with me for this, but I need to give you a little church history lesson. Thank you, Nicole. So we have to get dressed appropriately for that. Thank you. Make sure that everything is right for this. Thank you very much. Now, here's the deal. You have to know that the church hasn't always been this, uh, probably not this. Thank you, Tom. The church hasn't always actually been this way. For the first 300 years of the church, the church had little to nothing to do with political power. If anything, the church was oppressed and persecuted and seen as a threat to the political power of the Roman Empire that it existed in. That was all until 312 AD, when Constantine, the Roman emperor, converted to Christianity. This was a big deal. This is what we churchy folks would call a big get. The emperor of the largest empire in the known world said yes to Jesus. And he said yes to Jesus precisely because of how different the church was from the culture that surrounded it. But all that changed. Within 70 years, Christianity was the mandated state religion of the Roman Empire. And shortly after that, a militarized church, given their first real taste of political power, began murdering those who didn't believe what they believed. Don't, I, like, don't miss that. The persecuted church, within a few decades, became a persecuting church. The cross somehow was replaced with the sword. As the world developed more and more, nations and empires would have to decide if they would make Christianity their state religion. And the church was there all along the way to make its case that this religion of the humble servant Jesus was justified as a dominant religion and a dominant power. Then in 1095, Pope Urban II declared that not only were some wars that were waged actually just wars, but in fact, some wars were holy wars. Wars blessed by God. This gave rise to the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition where hundreds of thousands of people were murdered by Christians for not converting to Christianity. All the while, the Catholic Church continued to grow and gain more and more political power, determining and blessing kings and queens, controlling politics and policies, and designing some of the sickest hats ever to be worn in public. Now, this eventually led to Martin Luther, who, enraged by the abuse of power within the Catholic Church, nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door in 1517. It was a big moment for the church. But to be clear, his manifesto was not to denounce the endless enmeshment of the government and the Catholic Church, but to declare that Protestants should be the state-sanctioned religion. They deserve to have the power that Catholics so richly abused. Still with me? You still Okay, great. Just stay with me for a little bit longer. You'll see where we're going. Because you got to fast forward a little bit further to 1620 when you get a group of religious purists from England fed up with the indistinguishable lines between church and state who left that old world to form a new one where the church would be free from the pull of political power. That was the idea. And it was a good idea. And for a while, it looked like it would work. Except these religious purists 
purists seeking religious freedom would end up stealing land from the native and indigenous people of this new world, committing callous acts of cruelty toward them because of their religious beliefs, and ultimately slaughtering countless Native American men, women, and children, again, all in the name of religious liberty. And this would be a pattern continued by the church with the introduction of enslaved people into this new land. Many, if not most churches in America, found a way to contort and distort and misread and misuse the Bible to justify the enslavement and mistreatment and murder of formerly free people. And they did this for generations, Sunday after Sunday, sermon after sermon. It is a dark and despicable and defining mark on the white American church. And it set our, our country on a trajectory, honestly, that we have yet to fully face and make right to this day. But as America grew in power, so did the church. At times, envisioning itself holding the same power and influence as the Church of England that it once held, that they once escaped. Seeing this, the framers of our democracy penned a provision in an attempt to keep the church out of politics and politics out of the church. In the First Amendment to the Constitution, James Madison, influenced by Thomas Jefferson, declared that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, this idea was really beautiful and simple. The church's job is to do churchy stuff. And politics' job is to do politicky stuff. And don't ever get it twisted. And surprisingly, it worked for a good 200 years or so. That is until around the 1970s, when a conservative activist named Paul Weinrich, and eventually was joined by Jerry Falwell Sr., were convinced that America had lost its way and, and lost its vision of a God-ordained and God-honoring country. And they kicked off a religious political movement that would become known as the religious right. Their vision was to call our country back to God by exerting political influence at every level of government. Their belief was, and, and still largely is, that the best way to bring people and to bring this country back to God and to godly values is through political power. And we see the effect, the success, the failure, the fallout of this old idea right up to this very election that we are currently in. Now, why the long and understandably boring lesson in church history? Why take so much time in a church message to walk through all of this? Is it because I want to bash the church? I have some agenda to bash the church? No. To be perfectly clear, my intention is precisely the opposite. Because I don't know if you know this, but I actually work for a church. I kind of have a vested interest in this whole thing. And I believe that the local church, when it does churchy things, is unstoppable. Because right alongside the church's checkered past is a powerful picture and a beautiful story of who the church can be and what the church can do when it does what it's supposed to do. For example, did you know that the majority of our schools, our universities, our hospitals, Orphanages, shelters were all started by the church. 
It was started by people who actually believed what it says in James 1.27, that religion that our God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It's a church that doesn't put its faith in elections, but puts its faith into action. That's the church I believe in. That's the church I believe Jesus had in mind 2,000 years ago. An imperfect institution to be sure, but it presents the perfect love of God, the perfect love of Jesus to a hungry and a hurting world. I think that's the greatest potential for the church. And I also think it's one of the greatest problems for the church. And it all has to do with this pursuit of power. It has everything to do with power. See, I, I, I think this is what Jesus was getting at when he caught two of his disciples arguing about who was important enough to get to sit next to Jesus on his throne in heaven. You know that argument that you've had with your friend a hundred times, right? They actually were arguing about who mattered more and who deserved because of their influence to sit next to Jesus in heaven one day. So just real quick, grab a Bible or open a tab to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We get to see Jesus actually interrupt this conversation and have to say to his friends and his followers and future leaders of the church, he had to give them a lesson about real power. Matthew 20 verse 25 says this. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not so with you. Not so with you. See, what what Jesus was, was talking about, what Jesus was all about, was a different kind of power. Not the kind of power promised by politics. Not that kind of power, but the power that comes only from God. The kind of power that seems upside down to this world. The kind of power that doesn't pursue power. And he uses the cultural context of of servants and slaves, not as an endorsement of those things, but to get across how intense and immense this point actually is. How serious he is about this different kind of power that can only come from God. How loving and serving others is where real power is at. I think if Jesus were to speak to the American church today, I think he'd simply say this. Don't sacrifice supernatural power for superficial power. Don't you sacrifice supernatural power like he describes there for superficial power promised by politics or politicians. Not so with you. Don't get sucked in or settle for that promise of that superficial political power. It's not real power. And every time the church has pursued that path of power, it's lost its real power. Because when the church pursues political power, it might gain influence, but it loses its integrity. It might gain influence, but it will lose It's integrity, not so with you, not so with you. So 
your work for this week. Practice the power that Jesus possessed. That power to love even people you don't agree with politically, to love them. Like genuinely, authentically, pray for them, love them. The power to serve, the power to actually put others before yourself. At work this week, how can you go about your way, like go all, whatever you do, to go all out to promote and encourage others? You know how the politics of power work there, but not so with, with you. There's another kind of power that comes from loving and serving. At home, how can you go out of your way to serve or support your partner, your spouse, your roommate, your family? You know, there's always power dynamics in the home, but, but not so with you. How can you pursue a different kind of power as you vote? And you should vote. How can you embody the ideals that don't come from a party platform, but from a serving Savior who ushered in a completely different way of living, rooted in a completely different kind of power? See, I believe, I just genuinely believe that is our only hope. I believe that it's the only way for the church to be all that God intended it to be. It's to declare its dependence on him and his power.